Welcome to the Reform Journal Podcast, where we're talking about faith and church, scripture and theology, as well as culture, politics, history, literature, arts, and the sciences, with thoughtful, interesting people coming at it from a generously Reformed perspective. Find us at reformjournal.com. Welcome to this episode of the Reform Journal podcast. I am Steve Matinee Vanderwell coming to you from Pella, Iowa. And today we are pleased to have two guests. We have Jim Harrington and Tricia Taylor from Houston, Texas, who work with the Leaders Journey, an organization that develops leaders through coaching and consultation. And uh, welcome, Jim and Tricia. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun to be here. For our listeners, I will tell you, Jim and Tricia have done quite a bit of work with both the Reformed Church and the Christian Reformed Church, and we'll get into that in a a bit. But also, um, I think our hope is to somewhat let people become more familiar with what they do and uh, questions about the broader church as well. But why don't we begin, Jim and Tricia, by just a little bit about you personally as much as you want to tell us about your background, your training, your degrees. I definitely want to know your Enneagram number. And like I said, so what I'd really like beyond all just name, rank, and Enneagram number is if you have a story or a memory or something you look back on and you say, you know, that was an epiphany or that was a turning point in my life that helped me realize who I am and what I need to be doing so that our listeners have some idea just of of who you are. Trisha, you want to take a shot at that first? Sure. We can start with name, rank, and serial number, like you said. Um, um, I'm a lifelong Texan and tried to actually get out of Texas a few times with my husband. We even signed up to be missionaries once and never got a call back. We have just stayed here and made our lives here. I, uh, I, well, I'll go ahead and tell you my Enneagram number, and I'll say that I started with a spiritual director, firmly convinced that I was a two, and worked for her with her about a year. I'm doing really good work, and then realized at the end, I said to her, you know, I, I think I've discovered I'm actually not a two at all. I really identify with the three, and she just smiled and said, I wondered when you were going to figure that out, and um I very much identify with the three on the Enneagram. And, um, and and that's probably a lot of my story was just realizing that that two side of me, the servant, was actually the, uh, the entry point to getting a seat at the table as a girl who was called into ministry when I was about 10 years old in a Southern Baptist church down here in Texas and had a very, very powerful experience of being called and then didn't find out for another, oh, I don't know, eight or 10 years that actually God doesn't call girls to ministry. And I was on the wrong path. And so, um, you know, during that time, um, went to Baylor University. My dad knew that I had experienced this call to ministry and he just said, would you just have a double major? major in something else because you're gonna you might need something to fall back on he didn't want to be discouraging he wanted to be practical 
And so I, uh, I did that met my husband there. We were both serving small churches outside of Waco. And we got married on a, on a Saturday. I had my brand new bachelor's in psychology in my hand and um, went off to seminary four days later. And it was in seminary that I started to realize that my call to what I thought of as ministry was probably not going to happen and that I needed a plan B in this world. And that was also about the time that I started realizing that congregational leaders were not doing well and that they needed a level of support, mental health care, relationship care. They needed someone in their corner. And that was when I realized that what I thought of as a plan B, that I would go into therapy instead of into pastoral ministry, may actually have been a plan A. And that put me on the trajectory for a private pastoral counseling practice for, I don't know, decades now before kind of taking on the work that we're doing in the leader's journey. So that's how I got from there to here. Jim, what would you add? So I'm an Enneagram 8 with a 7 wing. And... Unlike Tricia, when I heard that, I thought, oh, man, yes, that, <laughs> that describes me really clearly. I grew up in northeast Louisiana, a little farming community, a Christian home, Southern Baptist, really conservative uh, church there. And in both my home and in the church, I experienced both the best and the worst of how people can be together. And... Um, when I was called, I had this experience of, of being called to ministry when I was about 17 years old. And I can actually remember in a typical Enneagram 8 style saying to God, okay, I'm going to ministry, but I am not going to do ministry the way that the people that I know are doing ministry. And so there's been this lifelong journey of living into that call. One of the things that I learned in those settings was about the, it was a cultural uh, expectation that we were going to, be in public, be inauthentic. And so you couldn't talk about problems in the home. You couldn't talk about problems in the church. And I, I think one of the things that shaped me most profoundly was when I got out of seminary and came to Houston 38 years ago, I joined the staff of the Western Hills Baptist Church. George Gaston was a senior pastor. I had been his grader in seminary as he's a pastoral ministries professor, he came to Houston a semester before me. I graduated and joined his team. And uh, it was the first experience that I had had where there was a, like a deep level of vulnerability in staff meetings. There were five people on the staff, and George modeled really courageously what it looked like to, to be authentic and vulnerable with one another. And I look back and think, not only did that give me eyes to see the impact of my own, of the downside of my own upbringing, but it gave me a vision for what's possible in the lives of pastors and leaders. And um, that probably set the course for my, my care and concern for church leaders and for congregational life. I think the only other thing that I would say is that despite uh, seeing the very worst of church, I also saw the very best of church and have had a fabulous church experiences at every step along the way. I love the church. I know I've heard Tricia say she was born on a Monday and was in church on Sunday, but we both love the church. Sometimes I come off as being critical 
but my criticism is my Enneagram 8, is my prophetic voice. I think I've gotten better at shaping it in a way that's designed to help the church grow and change and develop in positive ways. So that'd be the high-level story that I would tell. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's that's helpful and uh, insightful. So I, I appreciate getting to know you a little bit better on that level. So I mentioned, you know, I, I want to talk both about your work specifically with the RCA and the CRC, as well as really what the leader's journey does more broadly. But let's let's start with more the RCA, CRC. So to me, it seems really unlikely if I were to be looking back at history that two Baptists from the South would become kind of, and you know, you're not going to like this, but I'm going to call you kind of gurus to these denominations, both both officially, but unofficially, the, the work I know you do with pastors and congregations and things like that. Where was the connection first made? How did you ever stumble into a little world full of, you know, sort of dutchy people? <laughs> well, I think the answer is really clear. We co-authored a book, the two of us, along with a guy named Robert Creech, called The Leader's Journey. And I, I got a call one day from George Hunsberger at Western Seminary, say, and he said, we use your book and our master's and doctoral level programs, and we have a thing called the Ritter Church Renewal Effort, where we do an annual, have a speaker come in, and uh, we wonder if you would come and speak at our conference. And I don't remember exactly the sequence, but they invited me to come speak, and then they invited Trisha to come speak, and then they invited Trisha and I to come speak. That was multiple years in a row. Mm-hmm. Is that Am I remembering that right, Trisha? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in that last yeah. one where you yeah. and I went together was when there was a group, George Hunsberger was one and a group of others, and I'm sitting at the back of the room starting to say, I'm not sure that these one or two day conference events are producing the kind of transformation that we really want to see in the lives of leaders. And we walked across the street to Kara, right there in downtown Uh Holland, Michigan, and sat around a big round table and had a conversation about, so what might produce transformation? If not this model, then what might? And Ritter Church Renewal was born out of that. We did three years with a 16. Yeah, I might add that um, started with a heavy RCA presence, but as it, it grew into six different regions in the U.S. and Canada, picked up CRC people um, along the way. And I, at one point, I counted up the pastors over time, about 100 and I don't know, 120 churches, and it seemed to break down about mm-hmm. 60% RCA and about 40% CRC. So we did Ritter Church Renewal that has now come to be called Churches Learning Change for more than a decade. And until, until it started as a pilot project, grew into a grant from the Lilly Foundation, and then began to be expanded all over the country. And I think it was out of those relationships, you know, that Trisha said 120 churches, the pastors that we became friends with, that when, uh, when the RCA decided to do to appoint this 2020 team, we just had a lot of relationships and I think a pretty high level of trust. And so they turned to us and said, we wonder if you two would serve as facilitators for the 2020 team. And so uh, we've done that over the last, what should have ended in uh, June of 2020, but uh, I think our work will end in Tucson in, in October. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit more about 2020, but 
just more generally about the Reformed Church and the Christian Reformed Church and what you experience there. I mean, I'm just intrigued by, you know, you have now you've been around for a long time, but still you have kind of outside eyes. And I know this is the kind of question nobody wants to answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Sort of how would you sort of diagnose our little subculture world, our our gifts, our quirks, and I don't want to make too much of Enneagram numbers, but, you know, I've always gotten a kick out of it when people give an Enneagram number like to a country, you know, like this country is a four. I think the U.S. is supposedly a three, I believe, or maybe an eight. So, we, you know, you represent us well. You know, so talk a little bit about what you see in this little subculture, which, again, is not as monolithic or homogeneous as we might act, but still, and I, I think I gave you this example, like I always sort of say passive aggressive is the Dutch reformed emotion of choice. And I just like to know some of your little, like when you guys fly home together and you say, can you believe these people? I just, the, their neuroses are just so thick kind of thing. So anyway, say about as much as you want and dare and to still have that level of trust and continue to get phone calls from us. Well, let me start at, the, at a high level, and Tricia can add some uh, some color commentary. But at a high level, I would say three things real quickly. Tricia and I love people. Like we occasionally meet somebody where there's the experience that I don't like this person. But like far and and wide, from the left to the right, from the top to the bottom. Uh, I mean, in all you know, in all we just like people, and so uh, it was pretty early, easy for us early on to. We didn't come away saying, oh, these neurotic people are, oh, you know, calling them names. I mean, we came away saying, what a great privilege it is to work with these people, how much diversity there is here, uh, how much love for the Lord and for his church there is here. All That was in our regular conversations. I think I the second thing at a high level really that I would say tr- is that, I want to say that's really true. I just want people to know that's really true, what you just said. Yeah, it is. I think the second thing that I would say is that the Dutch Reformed, the, the Christian Reformed and the, and the RCA are just like all the rest of the world. We are living through this massive shift that has everybody anxious. You know, the, the paradigm shifts from Christian to post-Christian, from modern to post-modern, from industrial age to information age. I mean, we're living through a massive paradigm shift universally. That may, that's making people anxious and people are doing what anxious people do. In our book, we would talk about they're either doing conflict or they're doing distance or they're doing over-under function or they're doing projection. And I always like to you know joke and say, all my life, I'm kind of a conflictor as an Enneagram 8 when I get anxious. And Betty is a distancer, uh, <clears throat> my, my wife. And all of our lives, people have said about us that Betty was a better Christian than me because my anxiety gets put on full display. And when she gets anxious, she just gets quiet and smiles at you and says, here, let me pour you some more tea. And so she just she looks like a better person than I am. But universally, the anxiety that is in our society, in our world, the RCA, the CRC, USA, North America is, I think, just like all the rest of the world. I think the third thing that I would say at a really high level is when you pick one issue, uh, you, you do have a wide variety of opinions. But when you layer those issues on top of one another, and I'll just give a simple il- illustration. When you layer the human sexuality question on top of the unity question, 
the human sexuality question may have a lot of uh, agree, disagree, left, right, polarization. But when you put the unity question on top of that, it becomes much more complex. And then you add, you know, your, your loyalty to the denomination on top of that, and it becomes much more complex. And I think that there's a lot of effort that's been made to say this is there's one thing and there's a quick fix. And what I would say is that it is a very complex group of people like all human beings are. I don't, I don't, Trisha, what would you add to that? Or, or do you see that differently? <laughs> Sometimes that happens. Yeah. So no, I don't see that differently at all. I'm glad that you said, you know, most of what we see going on with the RCA and the CRC is what's happening universally. It's not unique. The, the church is, is um, having a lot of similar experiences, but I, I did think about some of the ways that I think that these are two distinctive or unique groups that shows up in how you um, interact together. And one is just your long history. The RCA's claim to fame as being the oldest denomination in, in the United States. I mean, that shapes you, right? That you're so embedded in history. As, a, as distinguished, say, from we do a lot of work with the vineyard churches, a much, more, a much younger movement. And so the way that you're embedded in history makes a difference. And over those 400 years, the ways that you've been disproportionately influential, a fairly small denomination has had massive influence on Protestant life in the United States and Canada in Western thinking, in theology and missiology, in church life. And so I think that's really important. We do talk sometimes about, we don't say passive aggressive, but we do talk sometimes about how nice everybody is. And that may be what you're referring to, Steve, there. And then maybe one other thing I would say that is somewhat distinctive is that y'all come out of an immigrant experience as recently as in our lifetime. And that also, I think, shapes the way that churches see things and maybe has set up that long history along with the immigrant experience has set up a situation where maybe even more than other denominations, you experience both a mainline stream and an evangelical stream, all trying to do church together. And that is sometimes cause for mutual enrichment, but also I think cause for anxiety, stress, misunderstanding, and those kinds of things. So those are some things that I would say are maybe distinctive about the RCA. But in general, I completely agree with Jim that in many ways, y'all are struggling with what everyone is struggling with, how to be together in the face of disagreement. How are we in this changing, pluralistic world changing values, changing demographics. How are we going to be together? What is unity going to look like beyond mutual agreement? And that's the question that everyone is facing now. And, and that's, I appreciate your answers. And I, I, I mean, as one of the tribe, I hear things there that, that your voice helps me even to see our group better. That said, I think, you know, when you guys are like really done and 
you know, you don't have to be worried about the future. You should write like sort of a little tongue in cheek book, like, you know, every denomination and like their Enneagram number, common phrases you'll hear from them, sort of a little like <laughs> Taylor and Harrington's American denominations typography or some sort of thing like that. Uh, but anyway, um, you've been talking about the 2020 task force. I don't know that all of our listeners will even know what that is. So I'm just going to give my little intro blurb on it. And then you can clarify that too. But it came out of our general synod, which is our widest gathering annual used to be for COVID always was annual gathering to try and find a way forward in the tensions and disagreements in, in the reformed church in America. And they were supposed to report back in 2020 and a small group of people were sent off to write a report on that. Obviously, with COVID, General Synod didn't meet in 2020, but a report came out, and we're, we're, our task today is not to really unpack that report. I, I think that's a, a different time and maybe even a different audience. I don't know that all of our listeners need to know, but I, I think it would be fair to say the presenting issue for the reasons of tension and uh, disagreement in the RCA was human sexuality, welcoming and including LGBTQ people, et cetera. But I, I'm sure you've discovered that's in some ways just the tip of the iceberg and there's a lot below the water level. But so the report has come out over a year ago. Uh, the Reformed Church General Synod is supposed to meet in October in Tucson, Arizona. I just wonder, you know, again, I, I'm not looking here for insider information. Obviously, there's confidential stuff. You've worked hard to have trust there, et cetera. But sort of, well, I guess let me put it this way. If the Reformed Church was a single congregation rather than, I don't know what we're supposed to be, 800, 900 congregations, what would you advise that congregation to move, how to move forward in this moment? Before we answer that question, I want to just clarify one thing. I don't believe that the 2020 team's assignment was to address the human sexuality question. I, my understanding, and Tricia said this, just to use the phrase just a minute ago, I believe that what was said was, we've been fighting about this, working on this for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's become really intense in this last decade, and we're not making any progress. And so the question is not, how do we solve human our beliefs about human sexuality? The question was, how are we going to be together in the face of the fact that we are so, you know, that there are so many different perspectives and opinions about that? And that's a different assignment. Yeah, that's a very different yeah. assignment. And fair enough. I mean, like you, you know, and certainly I, I would know, and people that are familiar with the RCA, it's not like we haven't had groups sent off to, to talk about what you mm -hmm. were not given. I mean, to write papers on human sexuality right. and what scripture says. And no, that wasn't your assignment. It was kind right. of given the fact we feel like we're always in conflict and maybe at an impasse. What do we do? I guess, is, is that a, a better way maybe mm -hmm. of yeah. framing what the 2020 yeah. group was supposed to do? Yeah. Yep. I think there was a lot of disappointment among some people in the RCA that got expressed at General Synod 2019, um, who really did think that the 2020 team was going to go away and come back with a single voice on human sexuality, the one right answer. And then the denomination would be called to rally around that. And I think pretty quickly the 2020 team realized that was not their assignment and was actually not even possible. 
and that what they were going to need to do was to describe a way forward that people could then choose to join or not. Exactly. And, you know, what I would say about that, Steve, is that we worked together for over two years, and it was one of the most profound experiences of my adult life. The denomination did a terrific job of, of really representing the diversity of the RCA. They didn't, they didn't stack the team with somebody that, you know, the, or the denomination, because they wanted it to go a certain direction. There were men and women. There were people of color. There were people on the left and the right. There were people from everywhere from New York to California and everywhere in between. And over a two-year period of time, I think that the most uh, profound thing that happened was that there was a deep sense of respect and affection that developed among these people who see the world really, really differently. I think the second thing that I would say is that on more than one occasion, we had the experience that that I would describe as seeing the spirit work, you know, where we were at an impasse or where we were seeing things really, really differently and putting those on the table and somehow in that kind of vulnerable expression of our differences that the spirit generated alternatives or solutions or ways forward that were, that you couldn't say, oh, well, this was his idea or this was her idea. It was something that emerged out of the group process. And I, I just believe that was the work of the spirit. Um, and so, so what I would say in answer to your question is, in the world that I grew up in, and I think in many places in the RCA, we place more focus on having right belief and less focus on having loving relationships. And so when I'm advising congregations today, I'm advising a, a, a congregation, I'm coaching a congregation right now where, where they have some real differences of opinion in the life of their congregation. And mostly what we're working on is how do you listen deeply to each other? How do you respect the fact that somebody sees it differently without giving up what you see? And uh, I think what we practiced in this small group of 12 is, a, is and prototype's not the, quite the right word, but it, it's something that we, that we all could learn from about how in the face of the polarized world we live in with so much um, diversity and so many differences of opinions, what it will look like to figure out how we're going to be together in the face of our disagreement. Patricia, you want to add anything there? Or? Well, I think there is a set of skills around what Jim is um, talking about. And often when we go into churches, mm-hmm. we have to just teach the skill of talking so people can listen and listening so people can talk. And denominations could probably stand to use to, to learn some of those skills as well. But I think, I think moving away from the question, I think I would take the question off the table about, or at least just move it to the side of the table about what do we, what are our beliefs and move to what Jim just said about how will we have loving relationships given that we disagree in our beliefs. And so to think about what holds us together. I would ask this imaginary conversation to think about if agreement is what holds us together, then every so often when something emerges where it's clear that we disagree, we will have to go through this again and again and again and again. If what holds us together is our agreement, then just buckle up 
for serial conflict because that we will just have to slug this out every so often because there's always a new question. There's always a new emerging place where we don't see things the same. When we think about the history of how deep the conflict went over Masonic orders, for example, way back in the day, it's hard for us to understand the intensity of that. But that was the issue of that day, and we have the issues of our day. And so to just ask people to think about, is there a kind of unity that is deeper and more spirit-led than the unity that forms around agreement about issues? And then I guess the only other thing that I would say is that there's some really good research that says in families, the two things that matter are generosity and kindness. And if churches and denominations could get on board with that, that what really matters, what holds us together is generosity and kindness, um, I think would be better off. And I think we saw a lot of generosity and kindness in the way that the 2020 team worked together. So I know I'm supposed to be the question asker, not the opinionator here, but you know, I've been around the RCA long enough that I know I mean, just some of the things you say just strike me as so interesting. I mean, that even 20 years ago, we were already asking, what is the glue that holds the denomination together? Because I think we saw it was no longer the Dutch immigrant experience kind of thing. So, and in a way, I think what that helps me to see is that 2020 isn't really only or even especially about human sexuality, it, it's really the, the culmination of that question. What is our, our unity and is it found in agreement or not? The other thing that I, I'm struck by is, as you were saying, you know, your group really wasn't sent off to come back with uh, a new exegesis of Romans 1 or something. I mean, being the Reformed Church, we've done that 14 times and sent groups off. But every time we've done that, that group, which have been diverse like the 2020 team, always came back liking each other and saying, we don't agree, but there's a way forward, but somehow has never been able to get over the hurdle of saying, hey, we, we eight people, we 12 people, we 20 people found out we have a lot in common and we all love Jesus, but somehow they can't, we can never get from the, the group we send away to do this study through General Synod and then in, into the life of the church. And yeah, I mean, I've always just been disappointed at that because we sometimes we've phrased it too as sort of, well, let's send a group away to listen to what the Holy Spirit says. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, you're pretty nice people, stay together. And then we get to General Synod. Well, I don't think that was the Holy Spirit. We need to have send another group away to listen to the Holy Spirit. Anyway. I'll stop talking and ask questions instead. But so again, I, I'm, I'll put this out there. I doubt you want to answer it, but get out your crystal balls and sort of say, well, maybe we could put it this way rather than best case scenario of where you would think the RCA could be in three to five years. Yeah, that's hard to know. I have no idea. I think that there are much bigger forces creating a resorting of denominations that's much bigger than the RCA. My uh, own denomination is, isn't actually big enough to even be a denomination. They refer to themselves as a denomination network because, you know, they have been part of the resorting. I think we're just living in a time where 
denominational loyalties are changing. The role of denominations is changing. And so I don't know that we can just look at the RCA without looking at that broader context. That's hard to see. Jim, what do you see for the future? Phyllis Tickles wrote a book that I'm having a hard time calling the name of right now, in which she says that that the world has gone through, that the church has gone through every 500 years, has gone through a major transformation, and that what happens is that uh, something new gets birthed and something old gets reformed. And, and I think she's right. I think we're in the middle of one of those. It always helps me to remember that in the early stages of the Reformation, that the Dutch reformers and the Swiss reformers and the German reformers were trying to kill each other, uh, you know, trying to burn each other at the stake and drown each other. And that's just a, a picture of what happens when we live through the kind of transformation that we're living through. What nobody can predict is that, in, that what's different now is the pace of change. How long did it take the Swiss reformers to hear what the Dutch reformers were doing? I don't know, but it didn't happen on an Instagram or in a, in a tweet. And the pace of change and the, the, the way that social media brings out the very worst in people. Uh, I just think we're living through this massive transformation that, that recognizes that the church needs to be reformed in some ways. I guess if I was, a, like if I was going to try, try to say something simple, I would say what Tickle said is there are going to be a lot of churches that are going to die. Denominations are going to die. There are going to be some congregations that are going to stay in place and are going to get reshaped and reformed. And if I was going to say something about the new thing, I would say smaller in houses, in places where people spend most of their day, workplaces. There's a lot of, there's just a truckload of stuff out there about the, the body of Christ functioning in workplaces. Uh, but like I can just see that very, very, very dimly and wouldn't say that I'm a prophet or a son of a prophet. It just That's some of the kind of stuff that I read is that I think ultimately we don't know. So let's switch gears here for kind of our last little segment, getting away from the RCA and CRC and the Dutch world and just sort of more about the leader's journey's work. Tell us, who comes to you? I mean, what, who do you work with? And, and I mean, I, I, I heard you say anxiety is rampant. And I'll just throw this out there. And what you say just a couple of minutes ago, Jim, a lot of things are going to die. You know, for me, that, that doesn't lower my anxiety. So how, how do you be honest with these people and at the same time walk them through anxiety? But still, kind of tell us what your work is in general, both with individual, primarily pastors, or I don't know, as well as congregations. Give us what the leader's journey does. Well, I would start by saying we, we just did a series of podcasts entitled Two Feet Walking. And it was an attempt to give our very best current understanding of the complexity uh, of, of becoming an effective leader in this world that we've been describing. And so on one foot is all about developing individuals, developing disciples, developing leaders. And on the other foot, there's the work about mobilizing people around a shared vision that they believe that God is calling them to. Um, and in the podcast, we would say, first of all, that's not new. That's, you know, that's as old as leadership is. But what is new is that there's a whole set of leadership skills that when any of the three of us went to seminary, nobody, nobody ever taught me how to have a crucial conversation. 
Nobody ever had a conversation with me about what's your conflict style and how do you do conflict in a way that helps the, the conversation move ahead rather than uh, sabotaging it. There's a whole set of things. I used to, you had to teach them the Bible and teach them some spiritual disciplines and get them to come to church and give and do some service. And, and, and most of those things happened in the building. And all of that has changed. And, you know, on the congregational side, when I was a young man, we did what we call long-range planning. And it was a green notebook that was provided by our denomination that said, preach the gospel, do Sunday school, discipleship training, youth ministry, men's and women's ministry, and music ministry. Here are forms for setting goals in all those ministries. And if you reach those goals, what's that going to mean for your parking lot and your building? And that was considered strategic planning. And as that has evolved, the most imagine if you'd made a strategic plan that the church unanimously, collaboratively agreed to in January of 2020. The pace of change makes all of the mobilizing people around a shared vision way more um, complex. And so we do three kinds of work. We do just one-on-one coaching. Somebody, I, I started a coaching relationship with somebody yesterday who had found our podcast and had read our book and called and said, hey, would you do some individual coaching with me? Uh, we have a number of clients where we're working on helping them w- with leadership development, on we're helping them with both feet. And, and so that involves some training where we'll go in and do a half a day or a two days of retreat where we'll teach skills that's followed then by coaching. It's one thing to get the skills intellectually, but it's another thing to practice those skills. And so we're doing that in a number of places. And then we're working with the RCA and the Vineyard uh, at the denominational level, uh, helping them with, with the kinds of more complex problems that large multi-denominational systems have to deal with. I mean, at a high level, that's how I would describe that. There's some more detail about the kind of work we do, but that's the categories of work that we that we do do, do that in. We put, we, we've written uh, two books together, uh, The Leader's Journey and, and a book called Learning Change, along with eight other RCA pastors. And we do a regular podcast that is an attempt to keep our listeners uh, aware of, of what we're learning, of uh, the conversations that we're having. Uh, we're conveying skill sets that, we're, that we think leaders need. That's at a high level. Uh, I might zoom in just a little bit and say right now, in addition to all that, we have a couple of things just based on our really deep conviction that one, leaders have to learn and they have to learn more rapidly than they've been learning and that they need to learn together, that they are isolated, they're lonely, they are under enormous pressure. They were before COVID, but it is exponentially I think, more serious now. And so bringing people together to learn, uh, we've got people can go to our website and see that we have a new course starting. Um, This is not a course where, you know, you read lots of books and listen to lectures. It's a course where we come together and share our learning about congregational culture and how to influence it. That course is called Deep Change, Slow Death, and we are about to get that started on October. And then um, another offering for pastors to come together in a collegial way and learn together and support each other. And both of those are things that are happening. And then the podcast, I would just come back to that. That's where we're putting our best thinking. And then the last thing I would say is just to remind people that the leader's journey is not just Jim and me, but that we have a team. Two of our team are RCA 
pastors. And so I would also say that. And then I might just jump in and say, and we work with some businesses as well. It's not just about the church. And so that's just something to throw out there. So just remind us of like where to find your website or, you know, your podcast. So if people want to know more, what, where do they go? Now we're at theleadersjourney.us. That's our website. Um, we're on Facebook at The Leaders Journey. And people are welcome to friend either of us individually. And the podcast is carried on just about anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify. Okay. Okay. So I like to end with this question always when I do these things is sort of, where do you find hope? What gives you hope? What is sustaining you? And yeah, I mean, trust in Jesus Christ is, is the good answer. And love should come in there probably somewhere too. But I'd like something a little bit more specific than that for each one of you personally. Sort of, how do you keep going? What makes you feel like I see the kingdom moving or the spirit blowing or whatever you want to say? So I would start by saying I am really hopeful. I think probably the thing that that generates the most hope in me on a daily basis is that on any given day, I'll have anywhere from three to six or seven conversations with either pastors or CEOs of the companies that they run or congregational leaders that are working on a team. And all the complexity and all of the polarization and all of the anxiety that we feel, I have almost a daily conversation and sometimes more than one where people with great resilience and faith are stepping into the challenges. They're not rolling over and playing dead. They're not, you know, blaming all the rest of the world for the problems that they're facing. But and when I when I experience their resilience and those conversations, I notice that when I get off the call, my energy level has gone up. I I find myself thinking, yeah, those are the people who are going to help us find our way through this. What is a very frustrating and challenging season? That that's probably what I would say. For me, I think history gives me hope. Just thinking back to all the times that the church has seemed to be in chaos and that the church has seemed to struggle to make their way forward, going all the way back to, I think we could go back to the Jerusalem Conference and the Book of Acts, and how mm -hmm. God has guided the church and renewed the church and brought us to the place we are now. And, you know, I, my, a lot of my hope comes from the belief that God is doing a new thing. I may not live to see exactly what the new thing is because um, God's vantage point, of course, is centuries and millennia. And I've just got this little bit of history in front of me right now. I think about the huge sorting among congregations and denominations, even just in the middle of the 19th century, preceding the Civil War, and how it must have seemed as though there was no hope for unity. And everything changed for denominations, for congregations, and yet we found a way forward. And, and so that gives me a lot of hope. And then what Jim said, in our work with the RCA and the CRC, we have met the most amazing people. We have really gotten to share life with people who are mm -hmm. seeking their own spiritual maturity, who are looking at their own transformation and how they can bring that to the church, and then who are willing to be courageous enough to take the risk to lead other people 
in that direction. And I look at the courage that takes and the deep love that they have. And whatever God is doing that is new is going to be planted in the soil that exists right now. And that soil in many, many cases is rich and fertile. And that gives me hope. Well, thank you. That, that gives me hope. I mean, I, and I would, I mean, I would, I would concur. I mean, there, there are so many good people. I mean, not just pastors, but I mean, colleagues that we, I love and trust. And, you know, I, I would just also say, like you talk about history, the, the survival of the church is not my deal. I mean, I can do my part, but the church isn't going to die. I may not see it. I agree with you, Tricia, where we're going, but um, it's not my thing to fix. I just have my little part to be faithful and creative in. I, I guess I tell you, your work gives me hope that... Um, oh, thank you. I mean, as much as I, I look back, I'm grateful for my seminary training, but when you guys were talking, I was thinking, you know, I think I came out of seminary saying, hey, you know, I can explain the synoptic problem or tell you the difference between Zwingli and Calvin's understanding of the Lord's Supper. And I'm, I'm really glad I can do that. But nobody ever talked to me about being a healthy person or how to have tough conversations. So, I mean, I just think the more the church can kind of lean into your kind of work, there's hope there too. Hey, we're going to wrap this up. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to Jim and Tricia, Jim Harrington, Tricia Taylor, The Leader's Journey, theleadersjourney.us. Say your book names one more time. Look for them on Facebook too, but the books are? The Leader's Journey uh, is the the first one and uh, Learning Change is the second one. All right. Thank you. So this has been a podcast from the Reformed Journal, and uh, we thank you all for listening and come back again soon. May the peace of Christ be with you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Reformed Journal podcast. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, share this podcast. And until next time, May the peace of Christ be with you.